0: the letter to first the letter to Timothy the first letter to Timothy chapter 3 so we continue to make our way through the letter of first Timothy we are concluding chapter 3 uh, this morning with verses 14 to 16 We've seen the importance that Paul places on truth and doctrine and the necessity that he charges Timothy with of correcting the false teachers that have infiltrated the church at Ephesus and have beginning have begun to teach a false gospel. So Paul has placed this supreme emphasis on truth and on the gospel. And very simply, he concludes chapter 3 with a concise presentation of this very gospel itself. And so I want to continue our study as we make our way through First Timothy chapter 3, picking up in verse 14, we'll read verses 14 to 16. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up. In glory, would you pray with me, Father? We come before you this morning, and we ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that the truths of your gospel would not fall upon deaf ears but that we would hear the life-giving message of the Gospel and have our hearts renewed and cleansed of their sins so that we can find our ultimate joy in Christ alone. Father, You call us to a great task to be a people who bear image to Christ even in His sufferings. And this is a task, Lord, that we cannot do if we do not have hearts that love Christ above all things. So, Father, we pray this morning that your gospel truths would be heard loud and clear and that the affections of our souls would be lifted up to you so that as we go out from here and as the church scatters, we would scatter with boldness and a renewed joy in Christ and a desire to see your glory spread across the nations. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Perpetua was a Christian noblewoman. Who was born around 175 AD and lived until her martyrdom in a Roman arena around the year 202. What we know of her comes from other Christian writers who lived around the time and who told her story as well, of, as, well as some fragments of her, her own diary. She lived with her husband, her son, and a servant named Felicitas in what is now known as Northern Tunisia. This is just south of Italy across the Mediterranean, Northern Africa. Now around around this time, the Roman Emperor Septimius Severus believed that his empire was unstable. There had been several dissident groups over the years rebelling against Roman rule. And the threat of civil war was an ever-present threat. And so he believed he needed to unify the empire. And one very important way to do this was to establish across the empire a state-sponsored syncretism where everyone could worship whatever God they desired. But they had to acknowledge as the supreme God, the sole Invictus, the Unconquered Son, S-U-N. The Unconquered Son. The edict, of course, clashed with the Christians of the empire who would not acknowledge any God except for Christ and Christ alone. So in response, the emperor outlawed all conversions to Christianity. And the punishment for breaking this law was death. Perpetua was one of the first and the most famous To suffer under this law. She along with four other new Christians were discovered. And arrested by the Roman authorities. She was placed in prison. And when her father who was still a pagan at the time. Learned of her arrest. He went to her in prison to plead with her. To change her mind. He believed that there was a very simple solution to this madness, to this predicament, and for her to avoid death. All she had to do was to deny to the Roman authorities that she was a Christian. Because the law simply outlawed conversion to Christianity. It's as simple as that. All you have to do is to go before the governor and say, I'm not a Christian, and you will maintain your life. And so Perpetua's father pleaded with her, begged her to do that very thing. But as he pleaded with her, she said to her father, Father, do you see this vase here? Could it be called by any other name than what it is? No, he replied. Well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. Perpetua was also pregnant at the time of her arrest and would give birth in prison. And after she had given birth, her father came again to plead with her. Only this time he called upon her to think of her family. Think of your brother, he said. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child who has just been born and who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. Words from her father. You can imagine that pressure. That inner turmoil of a mother thinking of her child. All I would have to do is to deny that Christ is my Lord. Won't it be better at the end of the day for my child? He won't have to grow up. She won't have to grow up without a mother. Am I not simply being prideful? Perpetua was certainly affected by those stinging words as they came from her father. She said to him, as she tried to comfort him, it will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. She would have another opportunity to deny that she was a Christian at her hearing before the governor. She could prove her loyalty to the empire, her patriotism, by simply offering a sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. But before the governor, she refused. And when asked, Are you a Christian? She replied, Yes, I am. She was condemned to die in the arena. There she would meet her death, being tossed by a wild heifer and torn apart by a leopard And eventually executed by the sword. What compelled this woman to live and to die like this? She was a woman with deep, convictional godliness. Devotion to her Lord, even in the face of great personal loss. Dying was great personal loss. But perhaps even more challenging than death itself was the thought of her own children without their mother. And the accusations of her own father that she was Simply full of pride. How does a Christian. Become so controlled. By the gospel. That the cares of the world. Great as they may be. Fail in comparison. To walking with Christ. Even in the midst of sufferings. Certainly, I think part of the answer is the strengthening power of the Spirit of God. But the Spirit of God does not work apart from the Word of God. The Spirit of God does not work apart from the truths of God. Indeed, the Spirit works with the truths of God. And the Spirit strengthens us by the truths of God. Paul said in Ephesians 3 that the Spirit strengthens us in our inner beings so that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ that surpasses any regular, normal knowledge. The revelation of the love of Christ. It's a biblical truth. Doctrine, what we confess, our confession as a church and as the people of God is a central part of what strengthens us to live in the light of the kingdom of God and what ultimately frees us from the oppressive cares and worries of the kingdom of this world. I find it very interesting and telling that when Perpetua was arrested, she was in the midst of taking classes on the Christian faith. She was what the early church referred to as a catechumen. Catechumens were new believers who were preparing for baptism. When someone professed professed faith in Christ, the church would not baptize them immediately, but would take them through a process of biblical training. They would teach them the core tenets of the gospel and the confessions of the faith. They wanted to make sure that this person... Who has professed faith in Christ. Understood what they were professing to believe. Because they knew that to profess faith in Christ. Comes with a cost. The son of man had no place to rest his head. That is the cost. That we are called to. The early church wanted them to have a solid foundation of Christian belief and the great truths of the gospel because they believed, and rightly so, that if someone is going to live a godly and Christ exalting life, it's only going to happen if they're rooted deeply in the confessions of the church. The confession of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. The confession about His miraculous virgin birth. The confession about His exaltation and His universal dominion over this world. The very reality and truth that all authority has been given now by the Father to this King. What we find in the Bible is that godliness... A flesh denying and a spirit filled devotion to Christ does not happen by accident. But is rather fueled and compelled by an embrace of the greatness of the truths the church confesses. An embrace of the greatness. That is that within our hearts, when we contemplate and hear the truths of the gospel, our hearts are deeply affected with love for God and joy in Him. The Bible teaches this very thing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, He says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. It is the confession that Christ has been appointed the judge of all men and that we all must give account to him that compels the apostle Paul does not hinder him, but compels him to go into the world proclaiming and persuading the glories of this king. Second Corinthians five, fourteen. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. The confession of the love of Christ is what compels and controls me, the Apostle Paul says. The sacrificial love life-giving love controls us. Peter also says in the text that we read earlier, and if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, throughout the time of your sojourning in this land, this foreign land that is not your kingdom." That you are not citizens of. You are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We know In our minds and in our hearts that Christ shed his blood to rescue us from the death dealing bondage of sin and that God the Father is an impartial judge. And so because of that truth, we are compelled to love accordingly. If Christ, if I believe that Christ has died for me and his death on a cross was Was done in order to cleanse me of my sin. And I have experienced that grace. I don't want anything to do with sin. I experienced its power before the gospel. And it was cruel. And it was oppressive. And Jesus provides freedom from that now. And so we shall live accordingly. I know that for many Christians, this connection between what we confess and how we live isn't really there. We know that we want to live Christ-like lives. We see Jesus and the apostles and so many other Christians like Perpetua living these seemingly otherworldly lives of world-changing devotion and godliness. We see Christians with a passion and a zeal for the gospel. And for many of us, we try and imitate these examples and find ourselves falling short over and over again. Maybe if we went to more Bible studies. Maybe if we prayed this would make things better. And So we make resolves to do these very things. And yet we find ourselves over and over falling into the same endless cycle of apathy towards Christ. I think the reason... For that, at least in part, is because we have missed this one great biblical principle. That the greatness that is the supreme worthiness of the church's confession, the embrace of this greatness of the church's confession, our confession as the people of God, the gospel truths, the greatness of the church's confession compels the godliness of her people's conduct. The greatness of the church's confession compels the godliness of her people's conduct. This is the principle I want us to see this morning as we look at Paul's Words here. And so we'll look at these in two parts. First, the church's great confession. And second, the church's godly conduct. My hope is that you see the truths of the gospel this morning. That you see the truths of this gospel and that your hearts are not cold towards them. But are rather warmed and deeply affected so that you embrace these truths as great truths. Not as abstract and disconnected propositions, but as water for your souls that energizes you to pursue holiness with greater passion a greater zeal. So first, the church's great confession. Paul tells Timothy in verses 14 to 15 that he is writing to him so that you may know how one is to conduct themselves, how one is to behave in the household of God. And he says that the household of God is the church, the people of God, which is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, what does a pillar and the buttress do? They're normally on the outside of walls of a building, providing support, right? And upholding some part of the building. And usually the part of the building that everyone can see, the roof, for example. And Paul says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. It upholds the truth and in such a way that everyone can see it. Well, what is the truth? What is the truth that the church upholds? What's defined for us as a confession in verse 16? Perhaps one of the earliest Christian confessions in verse 16. And in this verse, we essentially have a beautiful summary of the central truths of the gospel. Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. You'll remember perhaps that at one time when Paul was preaching the gospel in Ephesus, a riot broke out. Because people were enraged that the temple of their goddess Artemis would be discredited. Many of them made their livings by creating idols of this very God and selling them to the people. And so when the people began to reject Artemis and believe the gospel of Christ, they began to lose their money. And so they became enraged and a riot broke out. This Jesus that Paul was preaching was in direct opposition to their goddess. And so they became violent. And during their rioting, they were chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And perhaps here, Paul, remembering that very chant, he declares very clearly, no, indeed, great, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of the truth of the gospel. It is worthy to exult in. It is majestic and it is splendid. The gospel is a mystery that has now been revealed in Christ and in that revelation, truths that no mind could have ever imagined have shown into the darkness of this world. The gospel begins with the confession that He, that is Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. He was made known in the flesh. And this is the great truth of Jesus' incarnation. This is an affirmation that Jesus did not come into existence at His birth, but existed even before His birth. He was the pre-existing Son of God. He made it very clearly to the Jews when He said, Before Abraham was, I am. I am Abraham's God. I am the deliverer of the people of Israel. I have come before everyone and through me everything has been made. The Old Testament prophets prophesied that the Lord himself would come on the scene of the world. And before his coming, another prophet would prepare his way and so Malachi 3 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Who's the me? The Lord, the God of Israel. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. When Jesus was conceived and born, he was the fulfillment of prophecy. Indeed, there had never been nor ever will be again a man born into this world whose birth was anticipated since the very beginning of creation. He was the promised offspring of Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and at last, Mary and Joseph. He was promised to come into the world. When he was born, his birth was no mere birth either. It was revelation itself. It was God revealing, manifesting to the world, making a public proclamation to the world who His anointed Son and King was. The Apostle John speaks of Jesus being the Word of God. The Word that existed before creation and was the very one through whom all things were made. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. When you read Genesis 1, 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, Jesus is right there. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And John goes on to say, and this word, this promised Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, God the Son entered into our very existence and took upon himself our very nature and embraced all of our weaknesses. And by this act of self-humiliation, the world was introduced to the fullest revelation of God himself. The author of Hebrews says that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. When Jesus was born and entered into the world and began his great ministry of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, revelation in its fullest was present in the world. The gospel begins with the glorious truth that the promised Christ of God has been made known in the flesh As he has dwelt among us. And Paul goes on to say that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Meaning that the Spirit gave evidence to the world. That all of his claims. All of the claims of Jesus were true. You see Jesus made some very radical claims. Some claims that would make anyone else look like an insane human being. He claimed that his very existence in this world was unique to himself. He was not conceived from a conjugal union, but from the Spirit of God. And even more, he claimed that he was sent into the world by the Father himself. He came into the world because he was sent. Who among men can proclaim that very truth? I was not sent into this world. I was born into this world. And Jesus claimed that He was sent. He claimed to be Lord over all of creation. Lord over the Sabbath itself. Lord over all of the elements. The ability was invested with Him to stop and to create the storms themselves. He claimed to be one with the Father. That the exact will of the Father was His exact will because they are perfectly united from all eternity. He claimed to have the authority to command the angels of heaven. He was never afraid of the armies of Pontius Pilate or the Roman Empire because He Himself commanded the armies of heaven. He claimed to have authority over demons. He claimed to have the authority to send the Spirit of God into the world. He claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. He claimed to be the ancient of days who would descend at one time on the clouds of heaven and bring in the eternal kingdom of God. He claimed that His own blood inaugurated the promised new covenant of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He claimed that He would sit on the throne of the kingdom of God and judge the nations. He claimed that the law and the prophets bore witness to Him and that they ultimately found all of their fulfillment and end in Him. These are claims... That if anyone else were to make, they would render them insane and narcissistic and perhaps even dangerous. But all of his claims were proven to be true when he was raised from the dead. His resurrection was the cosmic testimony of God that this Jesus is my promised Son. He is the King over creation with whom I am well pleased. Romans 1.4 says that He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead if there was any doubt in anyone's mind that this Jesus who was crucified on a Roman cross was the promised Messiah, it was all proven true when He was raised by the power of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit of God did the work of raising Him from the dead. And so when He was raised, He was vindicated before the world. We who follow Christ... Reject any and every religion or God as false. We reject the unconquered sun God. We reject the gods of the Hindus. We reject any pagan gods that exist. Not simply because we have cultural preferences for Christianity. But because we are compelled by the reality of the resurrection from the dead. What God in the world has ever done such a thing as that? What God? has ever entered into the world, into our very existence, and revealed Himself as the Savior and Deliverer of the most wretched of men. There has only been and ever will be one. And He came as the man Christ Jesus. And Paul continues the confession by... Summarizing the way in which this work of Christ was announced. He was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. When his tomb was discovered to be empty. The first to see his resurrection were the angels. We read in Matthew 28 verses 1 to 6. Now after the Sabbath. Toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. For he has risen from the dead, as he said. So the resurrection of Christ was made known to the angels as they saw it take place. And the same can be said about many of Jesus' own early disciples and apostles. They too had seen the risen Christ. The reason the apostle Paul went from being a violent persecutor of the church to its greatest advocate and preacher and missionary is because Christ himself appeared to him in his body as the resurrected son of God. But the vast majority of believers have come to know Christ through the preaching of the gospel to all the nations As they heard his name proclaimed and as they heard the testimony of the resurrection, they believed. And so Paul says he was believed on in the world. And finally, he says Jesus was taken up in glory. He ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of God. Christians do not believe in a dead man. We believe in the living God. And we believe in the living Christ. And we believe that just as Christ ascended into the clouds of heavens, so also in the same way He shall descend on the clouds of heaven as the ancient of days to bring in His kingdom. Friends, there is a reason why the Apostle Paul exclaims, Great! Indeed is the mystery of godliness. These truths of the gospel are simply wonderful. God has not left us without hope in the world. He has not left us in a dry and a barren wasteland, and in a world with suffering and death, and in a world where our hearts are utterly bound by the oppression of sin. He has not cast us aside as irreparable waste. Broken and sinful and evil as we may be, the Son of God left the glory of heaven to dwell among men and to reconcile them to Himself. He purposed to reconcile us to Himself and even more to make us fellow heirs of the kingdom of God. Friends, our hope our great hope, our ultimate desire is not for our existence in heaven away from this world in the presence of Christ. That is great. And we certainly desire that when we depart from our bodies and die. But our greatest hope is that King Jesus will bring in His kingdom in the very resurrection that He experienced by the Spirit of God will happen to us. We too will be raised. And just as He has been made King over the world, we too shall share in the dominion that was lost in the garden once again. The command, have dominion over all of creation, will be fulfilled once again. Friend, if you know your own heart and you are aware of your own desperate need of grace and forgiveness and hope, how do you not rejoice in these truths? How would a heart not be deeply affected by these promises? How could this gospel ever be received with such coldness? Friend, if your heart is not warm to this gospel, if your affections are hardened, Against such an extension of grace by your Creator. Whether you be a professing Christian or not. You must go to God. You must go to Him this day. You must not delay any longer. You must go to God and cry out to Him. Lord, I have heard of Your works. I have heard of Your greatness. And my heart is cold. And it's unaffected. I have heard that you are gracious and merciful and a God who forgives sin. And I feel within my own heart my evil and lack of response to it. And the, golden, the coldness and the bitterness and the anger. I have no love. No affections or joyful feeling from your gospel. I fear that I am altogether like the devil. Who can hear this good news and be angered by it. And you ought to pray to him as David did. When he confessed his own sin to God. He no longer tried to hide it, but the Lord revealed it to his very own heart by sending a prophet to him. And he confessed his sin to God. And he said, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Friends, that is the response of the gospel in the heart. I've experienced grace. And I can't do anything else but to sing praises and to rejoice in my soul. And this has to be the response. Because friends, this is where godliness begins. There can be no joy saturated Christian life apart from a joyful embrace of the Gospel itself. And if your heart cannot sing aloud and confess, great is the mystery of godliness, great is the Gospel of Christ, then there shall be no godliness. There shall be no joy. Which brings us to our final point real quick concerning the godly conduct of the people of God. When Paul uses this phrase, the mystery of godliness, the phrase doesn't mean that godliness possesses a mystery, right? It's not godliness is a mystery. That's not what the word of is signifying here. It is referring rather to a purpose. Another way to translate the phrase would be something like the mystery for the purpose of godliness. This mystery, these truths, this gospel confession is for your godliness. It is necessary to be embraced as great for your godliness and your devotion and your love for Jesus. There is no devotion to Christ No genuine discipleship apart from a heart that embraces the gospel as supremely great. It is the gospel itself that compels us to conduct ourselves in a certain way. Not out of a sense of joyless duty, but out of a sense of joyful pursuit of God. Because we love Him and we love His gospel. When Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To give yourselves wholly to God in every domain of your life. This charge was based upon 11 chapters of gospel truth that preceded it, climaxing with a spontaneous burst of praise at the end of the 11th chapter, where Paul says, O oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable are His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. What makes a person defined by godliness, controlled by godliness? What distinguishes those Christians like Perpetua from the rest? Why are there some Christians whose lives are so evidently glorifying to God while there are others whom you simply are not even sure whether or not they know God. The difference comes down to a matter of joy. Some find the gospel to indeed be a treasure, the greatest treasure they could ever possess greater than any money, greater than any diamonds, greater than any homes. It is a treasure that is eternal and gives life. They find Christ to be worthy of losing everything for. While others find the gospel to be little better than medicine you take for a bad headache. The one, like the Apostle Paul, is controlled by the love of God. The other is controlled by the cares of a dying and fading kingdom. Friends, it doesn't have to be that way. The heart does not have to be cold towards the gospel. It does not have to be dead To the confessions of the church. The very promise of the new covenant. That Jesus brought into existence. Is that God can remake your hearts. That those affections that you confess are not there. That joy and that love for Christ. That is not there. Can be changed. By a miraculous Spiritual work of God. This is the very promise of the new covenant. He says, God says in Ezekiel 36, 26, when speaking of the new covenant, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh And I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. Friends, that is what conversion is. Conversion is not a simple changing of the mind. Conversion is a deep transformation of our very hearts where the wickedness that existed before has been stripped out. The power of God and the Spirit. And God says that is the promise of everyone. For everyone in the new covenant. That is the very reason I sent my son. And the very reason he sent his Spirit. Because that's what we need. We need a total heart transformation. Trust me friends. I know my heart. And I know especially what my heart was like before the gospel came into my life. I wanted nothing to do with the gospel or Christ or Christianity. In fact, all of you, I despised. How does one go from that hatred and that anger to a softening and a joy and a love for the King of the universe? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. The promise of God, my friends, the promise for everyone here. If you've believed the gospel before, or if you've never believed, if you are someone who has drifted, perhaps, from the church and from Christ, and you need new affections, that is the promise of the Gospel. And a call to you is to simply go humbly before your God and He will give you the desires of your heart. Would you pray with me?